All right, guys, baby's first sermon. You ready for this? <laughs> I'm delighted to see you all today and to think about these words in this very familiar scripture that comes to us usually the Sunday after Easter or on Easter Sunday. So I was a little taken aback by how this was really going to land, seeing that it's uh, pumpkin season and Christmas coming. So let's dive into it, but... Let's offer our thanks to God for giving us these words for us today. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our God, we are so thankful that you are a part of our life each and every day in every season. And however these words fall on us, let them live through us as your word speaks to us each and every day. Is not something that happens simply in the past, but transforms our lives for today. In your name we pray. Amen. So we find ourselves at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Would you listen or read along or breathe in these words from our scripture today? Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look at the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. This, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he might be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to your God and my God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said all of these things to her. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Has anyone taken too many classes in one semester? This girl over here too. It was my third year and my last year in seminary and I was intending to graduate on time until my chaplaincy internship took me over the recommended amount of units. It took me for a loop because I wasn't able to schedule my chaplaincy in the right semester, and therefore then that semester I wasn't able to have all of the different units that I was supposed to go. You know how that playing shuffle game works. I was at Fuller Theological Seminary, and I couldn't get one particular class that would have held me up, and that was the one piece to the puzzle that I needed to place. There are certain Presbyterian requirements that I needed to take, and so I thought, well, maybe if I tried a Presbyterian school, 
that they would have a plethora of these classes. As you might know, Fuller is not a specific Presbyterian school, but um, there was one right across the street. So notice that I said it's my timeline, not God's timeline that I was trying to play with here. And so in an effort, I went across the street to San Francisco Theological Seminary to see if they had a class that I needed. They had the Southern California campus right across the street. And it was nestled, perhaps you've seen it, in Pasadena Presbyterian Church. The best part of this story, though not the focus, although maybe really, really important as just a subtext, is that this is where I met Bong for the first time. A two-week-long intensive class about Presbyterian polity. How fun. But it launched into a lifelong friendship, and I'm grateful for that as our humble beginnings. The class, however, was not the highlight. And the class, however, was not the point of the story. It was registering for the class that actually brought me into a huge turn of events in my life. Registering for a class, that's just, you know, checking a box or filling out paperwork, you might ask. But it actually brought me to tears. You see, I had many stumbling blocks on the way to becoming an ordained Presbyterian minister. I think if you've ever run into one, they laugh and joke and say how many hoops you have to jump through, and there's hundreds. (laughs) But in the midst of seminary, I had a theological shift in my presuppositions about the Christian faith. Uh, A key mentor that I had abandoned me in the midst of these struggles. And now, I wouldn't graduate on time. Mm. And if I didn't graduate on time, then it would delay my ordination. If it would delay my ordination, then I wouldn't get a job and a call. And that meant income to help pay back my student loans. So I took a deep breath and I walked across the street to the SFTS Southern Campus Small signs pointed me in a labyrinth of Pasadena Presbyterian Church that led me past two of their large classrooms into their very small main office. And a gray-haired woman invited me towards her desk, and she slid off her glasses, and as they hung on her, she blinked her eyes and said, Becca? I glanced down at the nameplate immediately, and it said, Dr. Elizabeth Nordquist. Pastor Elizabeth had been my pastor at my home church, and she had not seen me since I was maybe 12, maybe 13 years old. And apparently she had left my home church to go work at SFTS Southern California campus, but I, in my teenage, I know everything about my own world life, didn't pay attention to where she went. I was just gone. So there she was, and she had no idea, and I didn't even really have any idea how big of an impact she had on me. She was the right amount of warm and vulnerable in a pastor. You know what I mean? And she was part of the reason why I knew that women could be pastors at all, because there weren't that many of them. You happen to have three, which is nuts, guys. And she wore this amazing gray robe that just started to match her speckling gray hair. It's posh in clergy robe wear. 
So we signed up for the class I needed when I needed it, and I left feeling known, filled, lifted up. I felt like those doors that had been shutting were now like French doors that were double and they were open wide into a giant field. It was a great feeling. So when I was reading our passage today and seeing Mary learning about her true self and her encounter with the resurrected Jesus, she leaves with a clearer identity of who she is and who she is herself and what her purpose is. And she fits right into our series that we've been talking about, about taking off the mask and realizing who your self-identity is. And so the scene where Mary Magdalene, she stands weeping outside the empty tomb is where we find her. But y'all, there was a lot of running that happened right before then. You take yourself back to April. You remember that the disciples had come. They had seen that there was stuff going on and that there was disruption at the tomb area. And they were at the tomb, which was in a garden outskirts of the city. And so then they had to go back into the city where the disciples were hiding. And so they were running back and forth to these places. I think Mary probably covered about 12 or so miles before 5 a.m. Who has done that besides some of our marathon runners? And so at this point in the story, it slows down, literally. They catch their breath. They pull back their sweaty hair. And they pause. And the scene goes slowly. And in each and every line, there's a million things that happen, I am sure. So Mary Magdalene is here, and she's weeping, devastated, devastated that the tomb is empty and wondering what on earth happened. She hadn't even considered resurrection. And we know that she had such grief and she had such anger. And so it doesn't really come out when I say it right, but I wanted you to hear the words when she replies to these two angels, I don't know where they have put him, is less damsel in distress. I don't know where they've put him. And it's more like filled with anger and accusations. I don't know where they've put him. I've got to go find out. I'm a woman on a mission. Do not stand in that woman's way. And just then, in her wailing, her moments, again, there's probably multiple minutes, maybe even an hour in between this moment. She's wailing, she's tired, she's grieving, she's annoyed, and then Jesus appears to her. Unbeknownst to her, of course, she thinks that he's the gardener. So at first, she didn't recognize Jesus, and we're not really sure why. Maybe he did actually look different, or maybe he clouded her imagery in some way, shape, or form. That's a little beside the point, but that happens when we see the resurrected Jesus and a couple of other times in the gospel, and we're just not really sure why people haven't recognized him. How They've been spending three years with the guy. How do they not recognize him? But there's something that has been covering her eyes to understanding who she really is and prevents her recognition until he says her name. Again, pause Mary, 
and she immediately recognized him. In the saying of her name, her true self, her faith was revealed. Her mask had come off. Who was she really? Who was Mary Magdalene really? To Jesus, we need to understand that the disciples as well, uh, it, it was not in the usual context of a typical ancient woman. So a typical ancient woman would have been forbidden to talk to men, except for their husbands. They weren't allowed to worship with men. They were forced to cover their heads and their hair because it was considered private. They were restricted to household work and considered and not considered reliable witnesses in court. <clears throat> Mary Magdalene is doing none of these things. And yet Jesus was purposely thoughtful about how he chose her, a woman, this woman, to appear first. And it breaks all the rules. All the rules. And she took off her mask. She's a true disciple of Jesus. She's not seen below the men. And she's seen as the one that would carry the good news of the gospel to the rest of the disciples. And when we read this story out of the whirlwind of the Easter context, I personally immediately resonated with it. And when we're not focusing on Jesus rising from the dead, we can start thinking about the other characters and their reactions. Now, I personally have never been alone in a garden really angry and sad and had two angels just come up and talk to me and try to comfort me, which would be nice. But it does remind me of the archetypal story of someone who doesn't think that they were the right person for something God was calling them to. It shows up over and over again in history and stories and in the scriptures thousands of times. God was calling her to do something. But she didn't think that she had gifts for that. Her particular gifts and particularly her history made her not a great person for the job. She wouldn't have been the first person raising her hand. And she was simply overlooking her inner self. She's introduced in the Gospels in three ways. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John introduce her three ways mainly. A woman who Jesus had driven seven demons out of. What an introduction. She's also a woman who had a sinful life, which usually means that she was a prostitute. But she heard about Jesus. And remember the story of when she came forward with the alabaster jar and as a symbolic inward to outward expression of I'm giving up that old life and I am coming to Jesus. She gave him the alabaster jar. And then she's mentioned as the woman who traveled around with the disciples as one of them. Little known fact, often overlooked. We just think it was the 12 that were walking around with Jesus, but there were others. But this is not exactly the description of the person that 
anyone would really choose to preach the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Might this role have been reserved for somebody with greater importance? Somebody with more nobility? Somebody at least with not so shady of a background? And the question for the hero in the archetypal story becomes, how does the hero go about triggering the inner depths of themselves? Maybe there's an event. Maybe there's a person that they've met. Maybe there's some tragedy. Maybe there's a challenge. Whatever it is that challenges that inner hero, they come out. And that inner hero comes out with amazing results. And we always want that for our own lives. And we see it happen in Mary Magdalene. And at this moment, she musters up enough courage and starts showcasing herself as a self-identified hero. A self-identified hero indeed, confronted with Jesus in the reality of who he is, simply by calling her name, Mary. Nothing else happens verbal between those two lines, between Mary and Rabboni, but everything happens emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. The tension of the seconds may seem like hours. And so too often we look elsewhere to who our true self is. We look to the media, we look to boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, We look to change on the outside who we are to reflect what we might want to become on the inside. But the reason is that God made us who we truly and uniquely are. It's up to us to tap into who that is. And the only way to do that is to draw closer to Rabboni. Our true selves. So what about us? How could we be more vulnerable and take off our masks when Jesus calls our name. This story still counts a lot for today. And it has a zinger that makes me think, why Mary? And then why me? Perhaps why you? But if someone in the first century had wanted to invent a story about people seeing Jesus after he had resurrected, they wouldn't have dreamed of giving the star part to a woman, let alone a woman like Mary Magdalene. Amen.